Let's hear the word of the Lord this morning. Jesus said, the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. My friends, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God, and all things were made through him. Without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and that life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, he believed in his name. He gave them the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but born of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Dear God in heaven, you have loved us in ways that are impossible for us to mark. And yet here in your word we see and hear of the light that you have granted to us through Jesus Christ, of the grace that is ours because of the work of Jesus Christ, because of the truth that we experience because of the work of your Son, Jesus Christ. Lord, you sent him into this world. Christ, you came into this world. Spirit, you led him through this world. And we rejoice and are so grateful for the blessing that is ours. In Jesus Christ we pray, amen. It should probably come at this point as no great surprise to you that we have turned into uh, the Advent season. We have begun the Advent season, which is a season of anticipation and of great joy and excitement, all the things in which we normally associate with Advent, the lights, the smells, the, uh, the joy of family gatherings, all the fun, everything that we have all experienced in part because of the Advent season. And we should experience all those things and should appreciate all of them. They mark our lives together and uh, the passage of our time here in this world. But also for believers, most of us have heard that cute catchphrase, which we all kind of know to be true, that Jesus is the reason for the season. Um, and as Christians, we know that is kind of the case that in the midst of everything else, in the midst of all of the joy and all of the festive celebrations that we have as believers, you can't deny the fact that for the Christian, certainly, but really for the entire world, it is true that Jesus is the reason for the season. Now, what I want to do here over the next five weeks, though, is to ask the next question beyond that. Why is Jesus the reason for the season? If indeed Jesus is the reason for the season, as I think it's fair to say, if indeed we have Christmas, we celebrate Christmas overwhelmingly because of the coming of Jesus Christ, how do we understand the reason behind that? What is the reason for the reason of the season? Uh, and what we're going to do is we're going to take some time over the next five weeks and take a look at passages of Scripture where Jesus himself says, look, 
This is the reason that I came. Now, it's easy for us to miss that. It's easy for us to assume in the midst of all of the hype and the lights and the beauty and the stage that is so beautifully decorated. That's why Brendan, by the way, did all that work. We'll continue to do a lot of that stuff to make this a marvelous place for us to be taken into God's presence during the Christmas season. Exactly what the decorations, exactly what everything here should do, lead us into God's presence. In the midst of all of that, we're going to be taking a look at passages of Scripture where Jesus identifies clearly why he came. In, in other words, not just the assessment that Christ is here, that Christ is present, uh, and that we celebrate because Christ came to earth, but a reminder to us about why he came to earth. This is why the series is subtitled, as is our, uh, Lenten, or our um, Advent devotional, which I hope that you have access to, A Christmas Journey to the Cross. Because if you've been involved in church for some time, you know that Christ very much so came with Easter in mind, with the cross in mind, with his death in mind. That is uh, the undercurrent, the, the reality that is present in the midst of all of the celebration that we justly do. It is a remarkable thing that our Lord took on flesh, that he came here and dwelt among us. Everything in which we celebrate, the hope in which Mike talked about earlier, all of the excitement in which we experience as believers around Christmas season is appropriate, but it all happens within the backdrop of the reason why Christ came. We can't get so caught up with the idea of Christ coming that we miss the purpose behind that. And so the reason for the reason of the season, and today I'd like to draw your attention, if I could, to Luke chapter 19, verse 10. Now, the backdrop for this, if you grab your Bibles, you have that available for you, Luke chapter, 10, uh, chapter 19, verse 10. The backdrop of this is Jesus' interaction with Zacchaeus. Uh, many of you will know a little bit of the Zacchaeus story here. This is uh, the small man who was a tax collector and somebody that oppressed the people, climbed the tree, Jesus sees him, says, hey, come. And then in the midst of Jesus' expression of salvation to Zacchaeus, he summarizes what has taken place. He summarizes his interaction with Zacchaeus with this line in verse 10. The Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. The Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. Here we have the, the idea of his coming. Now, the coming that Jesus has in mind here as he says this statement is not that he came to Zacchaeus's house or not that he came to Jericho, the city, or not that he came to Judea as a whole, but the idea of his coming, the, the whole intent in which we celebrate, the anticipation that we have during Advent, that Jesus his coming, that he came here into this world. That's the, the, the sense that Jesus has here when he says, the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. I want to point out three things as we go along through this time uh, here, as we look at this verse. One, that we have one Savior, that we have one Savior. Two, that there are two goals that are present here. And three, that there are many who are blessed. One Savior Two goals, many blessings. One Savior, two goals, many blessings. The Savior, the one Savior, right at the beginning, the verse begins with, the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. Now this is one of Jesus' favorite ways of referencing himself. 
he talks about himself as the son of man. First off, we have to kind of get over uh, a small cultural hurdle here. It's a little weird that Jesus refers to himself as the son of man, that, that he refers to himself in the third person. Um, somebody walks around and they talk about themselves in the third person, we think that it's really weird. Uh, we don't do that very often. The natural reading of this passage would be Jesus saying, I have come to seek and to save the lost. But he doesn't say, I have come to seek and to save the lost. He says, the son of man. He refers to himself as the son of man. It's very clear that he's talking about himself over and over throughout the scriptures. Jesus uses that phrase, the son of man, to reference himself. There's no question about that. It's just a it was, it was a more popular, a more familiar way of talking in the uh, 2,000 years ago, first century, uh, than it is today. For us, it sounds pretentious, somebody talking in the third person like that about themselves, but this is, this is normal. When Jesus says the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost, it's, it's not weird for him to be using the third person like that to reference himself rather than say, I have come to seek and save the lost. Say, okay, so we've got to get over that. The Son of Man, that title, another problem for us is that that title sounds in our ears exactly opposite from what it sounds like in the first century Palestinian ears. Uh, in in the, the Jewish person from back uh, 2,000 years ago heard the phrase Son of Man and immediately associated that with divinity. This is a title that identifies Jesus as divine. I was trying to think of how the best way to describe this. Imagine 2,000 years ago, if you're a football fan, this doesn't work if you're not a football fan, but if you're a football fan, 2,000 years ago, two, sorry, 2,000 years from now, somebody grabs a paper, they're doing research, and they look in the newspaper, and they describe uh, Tom Brady as the goat. Tom Brady is a goat. And, you know, they're struggling trying to think, this guy is an animal? You know, what does it mean that he's a goat? And it doesn't ring in their minds. Now, if you're familiar with the language, goat stands for the greatest of all time. So, you know, Abraham Lincoln is the goat of presidents. Uh, Tom Brady, the goat of quarterbacks. You know, Michael Jordan, the goat of basketball or something along those lines. So goat refers to, but if you just hear just the word goat 2,000 years from now, you'll think, man, that's really weird. Okay, in the same way, the Jewish people were used to talking, to thinking about the saving power of the divine, the saving one of the divine as the son of man. That was just their nickname, just like we would use goat as a shorthand for the greatest of all time. They used the son of man as shorthand for the divine savior. So when Jesus here refers to himself and says, the son of man has come to seek and save the lost, he is very specifically identifying himself with that saving divine one. Now, we could take some time and look at this term biblically, trace it back through Daniel 7 and try to show how it is that the term son of man has this divine connotations. That would be fun. Or we could look at it historically and kind of look at how the ancient Near East cultures around Israel understood and would have used the term son of man. What did they hear when they heard Jesus say that he's a son of man? Not Jewish people, but other cultures. We could do that. Uh, we could look at it theologically and try to say, hey, what does it mean here that Jesus is a son of man? That, that title kind of introduces the idea of the incarnation, the coming together of the divine nature and the human nature in one person, Jesus we could kind of look at it biblically, historically, theologically, um, and if we're writing a term paper on the Son of Man, you kind of have to do that. 
But for our purposes today, I want to look at it experientially. What is Jesus saying, not just to the crowd around Zacchaeus, but what is he saying to each one of us when he refers to himself as the Son of Man? Certainly he's capturing that incarnation idea. Certainly he's capturing the, the biblical savior idea. He's playing off of all those terms. But I think experientially what he is stressing is he is emphasizing his presence with us. He is saying the Son of Man, and when he uses that term, he's referencing, yes, the divine Savior, but the experience that you're supposed to have is the divine Savior is here with me right now. The divine Savior is present among us. That's the experience. Now, forget the theology, forget the theory and stuff like that. What are we supposed to experience as those who witness the saving work of Jesus Christ, who get to see him do this marvelous thing with Zacchaeus, saving, bringing about salvation, and then Jesus makes this pronouncement. He says, look, just so you know, the whole reason why I'm here, the whole reason for the season, is so that I might, the Son of Man, might seek and save the lost. And by identifying that Son of Man, he is stressing the imminence of our God. That is, that he is present here with you. Are there moments of sorrow in your life? Are there moments of confusion, frustration, pain, joy, gladness, happiness? There should not be a second in your life where you are not repeating over and over again in your mind that statement, my Lord is with me now. Not because the words mean, not because you're trying to talk yourself into it, but we are preaching the essence of the gospel to ourselves over and over again in any situation, in every situation. We are reminding ourselves that at the very core of the Christmas season, the very core of Advent, the very reason for Christ's coming is that he would draw near to you. And this is not something that he did 2,000 years ago and stopped. We don't have time to trace it through the, through the scriptures, but it is crystal clear in the Bible that our Lord intends for you to experience the presence of God in everything you do. It is essential that we learn to talk to ourselves, to convince ourselves in the midst of the trouble and the sorrows that we have and the joys and the experiences that we have, we need to tell ourselves that fundamental truth over and over again. Jesus presents himself as the Son of Man. He is imminent in my life. That means that he is present with me. Every, that doesn't make the sadness go away. That doesn't make the sorrow somehow disappear. It doesn't make everything great and hunky-dory. Is that a term? Uh, it, 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 what it does is it emphasizes again the great sacrifice of Christ by drawing near to you. Uh, one Savior, the Son of Man. Two goals. The Son of Man did what? 
He came to seek and to save. The Son of Man came to seek and to save. We end up watering down, I think, way too often what the salvation looks like. What does, what it means, Jesus Christ came to save. Okay, we all kind of know that. If you've been a part of this church community for any period of time, that language doesn't surprise you. You know, Christ came to save, and we even know what he saved us from. Christ saved us from our sin. Okay, we recognize that. But most of us water down the danger in which we are in. We don't want to confront the real consequences of our sin. Jesus Christ saves me from my sin because when I'm irritable, it doesn't go well for me at home. When I am frustrating to other people, it doesn't go well for me at work. When, I, uh, when my sin shows on the outside, my life is worse off. And so Christ saves me by enabling me to have a better life. And so I want Jesus to save me so that I can have, so I can live this life a little better and those kind of things because my life will be better and the lives of everybody around me will certainly be better if Jesus saves me from my sin and I get saved from my sin. All of that is absolutely true. And all of that is secondary, tertiary. All of that is way down the list compared to the real danger that confronts every single one of us because of the essence of our sin. When the scripture says that Jesus came to seek and to save, to save us from our sin, he's not saying so that we can live better lives here upon this earth. That's a glorious consequence of what Jesus has done. But the goal of Christ coming to earth is that we would be saved from the real danger that confronts every one of us, the danger of being eternally separated from all that is good, all that is beautiful, all that is lovely, to be eternally separated from God himself. That's what the Lord saves us from. Now we've got a paranoia about preaching about hell, about really dwelling upon the consequences of our sin. But Jesus' pronouncement here, that he has come to seek and save the lost, is not simply a message for the lost. It is a message for all of us who have been saved to realize what it is that Christ has done, not to realize it once and to experience that and to rejoice that we've been saved. That's great. That's important. That's what we do. But the text wants us to think about, to dwell upon, to be confronted by the real work that Christ has done on the cross to save us from a real danger from a lasting danger, the danger of forever being separated from God. Somewhere along the lines, I realized that I am a true landlubber. I don't know if you know the term, landlubber. Uh, I, I, I uh, don't want to sail. I don't want to go out on the ocean. I like the land. And I realized this one time where Kelly and I went on a uh, whale watching 
trip and we went outside. As soon as the land disappeared from view, I started to panic. Uh, not full-blown panic, but, you know, because I'm too macho for that. Uh, but enough of a panic that inside I was really wiggling and stuff like that. And that sense has never really left me, an awareness that I don't want to get uh, far beyond land. So I sit and I think what it must be like to be out on the ocean with waves really broiling and everything really bad and it's late at night and stuff like that and it's so terrible and then suddenly off in the distance you're panicked because you don't know where you are and off in the distance you see bright shining the light of a lighthouse the beacon that says here is where salvation is and it has the and, and you know that if you go towards the light you're going to run into land. You're going to be saved. You're going to find, because you've got the beacon that is beaming up here like the lighthouse. It's so glorious. Christ is no lighthouse. The church is not supposed to be a lighthouse. Because Jesus did not save by coming to this earth and saying, here I am, come to me. He does say that. But in the midst of that, Jesus says, I have come to seek and to save the lost. Jesus isn't standing at the secure place, shining a bright light, saying, over here is where you will get salvation. Our Lord has come and has sought you out. Our Christ comes to find you wherever you are. Our Lord, picture the difference between the Lord as leading a search party. He is desperate to find those who are lost, and he is seeking you out every minute of your existence. And I think that's key. It's not that he seeks you while you were lost before you became a Christian. Christ seeks you continually. This is the Christmas imagery we have of light. The light of the world comes into this world. Jesus Christ comes into this world, and that light pursues us and pursues us consistently every second of your existence. The light of Christ is pursuing you, saying, where are you hiding in darkness? Where are you hiding in darkness? Because here comes Jesus Christ, bringing the light of his truth, the light of his grace, shining that on you wherever darkness is part of your life. He is bringing that light because he came not just to save the lost, praise God he did that, but he came to seek the lost. And if you are alive today there are yet areas of your life where you are lost you have too possessive a view of your family you have too weak an idea of your vocation you have too sad an understanding of the happiness the joy of being a Christian. You have too mundane a view of the depth of your sin. And in every spot, 
where there is darkness in your life, our Lord is seeking you out. He is seeking you out so that he might save you. One Savior, two goals. To save, yes, but to seek and to save. For the many who benefit. Who benefits from this? Jesus Christ came to seek and to save the lost. I am stereotypically one of those people that when I was lost back in the day, I'm no longer lost. Thank you, GPS. But when I was lost and we were driving together, Kelly and I, she would do the typical thing, classic thing, Henry, why don't you ask for directions? And I would do the typical male thing, why? I'm not lost, with no idea where I am. Um, we, were, we, we played that character to a T, uh, the two of us. Um, and the real shame of this is that most of the time, I really wasn't aware of how lost I was. There are certain spots where I kind of, you know, there's sometimes when I got lost, I knew that I was absolutely lost. But most of the time, I kind of only sort of sensed that I was lost. But I wasn't total, you know, I was kind of lost. Jesus Christ came to seek and to save the lost. He came to seek and to save those who know that they're lost. Do you have that moment of conviction in your life? when the Spirit comes upon you and you hear the right sermon or you read the right scripture or your friend says the right thing to you and it brings that power of Christ's conviction upon you and you sense that, hey, yes, here I am truly lost. In this particular area of my life, I have truly missed the beauty and the glory that Christ has put forward for me. And you realize you're lost at that moment of conviction. Christ is seeking you, shining his bright light into your darkness so that he might save you through his imminent presence. But there are so many of those times where I kind of think, sort of, that I don't have it right, maybe kind of, some parts of it isn't right quite totally. And at those moments... Christ is seeking you out. Christ is pursuing you so that he might save you from those moments where you're just not quite sure if you're not right or not. And then, praise the Lord that he is a God who seeks you out when you have no idea that you are lost. That you have no conception that you are not where you think you are but the Lord sees with the light of Christ and he knows where you are. He seeks you out when you know you're lost, when you might think you're kind of lost, and even when you're completely ignorant of being lost. How many of us have that experience where Christ has come to us when we're completely unexpecting, when we're not even looking for him, and yet nevertheless he shines his light of salvation into our lives. That's what it means that Christ seeks and saves who? The lost. The gospel writer Luke is known for um, portraying Jesus as the one who pursues those who are downtrodden and oppressed. If you feel downtrodden and oppressed, and if you are in any sense at all, read the Gospel of Luke 
The Jesus that is portrayed there, the stories that Luke latches onto are those stories. He is communicating desperately to you, those who are poor and downtrodden, this is your Savior. But that's not Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus was rich. Zacchaeus was the oppressor. He was the guy that pushed on other people. He was the guy that stood on other people's sorrow and sadness. And yet Jesus Christ says that he has come to seek and to save the lost in saving Zacchaeus. Because the reality is that what Zacchaeus has in in common with all of those who are poor and downtrodden that the rest of the gospel communicates is their lostness. Zacchaeus is just as lost being the oppressor as the poor people are who are the oppressed. Zacchaeus is just as lost being wealthy as all those poor people are who have nothing. And what we have is the imminent Christ who comes, the imminent, the present Son of Man who comes to seek and to save every one of us who are lost.